My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. Hello everyone. Today we have another Mechanics to Steal episode, and we are going to be talking about Dungeon World. For those of you that are unfamiliar with the game, I will be talking about the system and how the game mechanics work, how the game is played. So this is going to be somewhat of a review, a preview, and then we'll also talk about a handful of things that can be stolen and brought over to other games. We've got a long list of things to talk about, so we will be talking about the core rules, we'll be talking about the fixed difficulty mechanics, we'll also be talking about fiction first and fail forward, we'll discuss GM moves, player input, partial success, class-based damage, how they handle racial bonuses, we'll also talk about grim portents and adventure fronts, which would be very easy to steal for other games. And we'll also take a quick look at the monster stat blocks and how they're structured. They're very simple and easy to put together. Before we jump into the episode, I just want to thank all of my listeners and give you a few ways that you can help support the podcast. The first way is just by listening to the episode. So congratulations, you're already helping me out. You can also interact with the podcast in any way, like, share, all of the usual things that also greatly helps me out. And it's super easy to do. The next way you can help is by interacting with the community, hanging out in the Discord server, playing or running games on the server, or joining in our design contests that we run. The third way you can help is by being interviewed or letting somebody else know that they should get on the show. All you got to do is contact me via Discord or Twitter or wherever, and we'll get some time scheduled to get you in on an episode. If you're still looking for ways to support the show, you can always use one of the affiliate links in the show notes for any of the RPGs or books that are mentioned. They link to either Amazon or DriveThruRPG, and if you make a sale for anything on one of those sites after using a link, then I get a small percentage of the sales. That's a great way to support the show while also getting something for yourself. And finally, the last way is you can support me on Patreon or buy me a coffee. I will have links in the show notes on where to go for that. And that's just a simple monthly donation to help fund future design competitions and equipment purchases and stuff like that. Thank you again to all of my listeners. I feel like we've been growing a really awesome community here around tabletop role-playing games. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Just a little disclaimer before we get started, one of the creators of Dungeon World had somewhat of a public uh, incident, and they're no longer really in the tabletop role-playing game space um, due to some things that happened on stream. Um, Definitely don't condone any of those things, and it's just a reminder of why safety tools and making sure everybody is comfortable with the content uh, and the direction that you're going with is important. Uh, So make sure you have those conversations with your groups. And other than that, that's really the only thing I wanted to bring up. Ahead of time, most of this episode is going to be not focused on that sort of thing and focused on the game itself because I think there are a lot of great things that we can learn from Dungeon World, and it is a very fun system to play. Let's get started by talking about what Dungeon World is and kind of where it came from. So Dungeon World is a Powered by the Apocalypse game that came out of, one of the many games that came out of the Powered by the Apocalypse movement from the original Apocalypse world. 
the Apocalypse World engine is allowed to be uh, converted and used for multiple different games, as long as you just, you know, say Powered by the Apocalypse, um, which has been a great explosion of a lot of fun indie games, and it has slightly different mechanics if you're coming from a D&D type game. The first thing I'm going to talk about is just the rolling mechanics for making a check, uh, because I think that's one of the most common things in tabletop role-playing games, so we're, we're just going to start there. And the Powered by the Apocalypse system uses 2d6 plus a modifier. So in Dungeon World, you have your traditional six attributes or stats, you know, strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. And whenever you need to make an associated check, you will roll 2d6, add them together, and then also add whatever your modifier is. So if it's like a plus 1, a plus 2, plus 3, whatever it is, you add that. Or maybe it's negative, and you subtract that amount. And here is where we get into some of the partial success mechanics of the game. And there is no difficulty level that is set by the Dungeon Master. And this is one reason why I think that uh, PBTA games in general are a little bit easier to run as a Dungeon Master because you don't have to figure out how difficult something is. It is just built right into the roll mechanics. So on a 6-, minus, so you, you rolled your dice, you added your modifiers, if you get less than a six, that is a failure. And the narrative kind of shifts over to the game master to make a move, maybe have a monster do something, maybe have something change in the environment. Uh, maybe they'll trigger grim importance, which we will get to later on in the episode. Uh, that is bad. You don't want that to happen. Uh, but it is a fail-forward game, so things keep moving even though you failed. Another neat mechanic with Dungeon World is that when you roll a six minus, that is when you mark an experience point. So the way that you level up, one of the main ways you level up is by failing rolls. Uh, and so you're kind of failing through action and through learning. So it takes a little bit of the sting out of the game. And it does also make it so that characters can level at slightly different rates, depending on how frequently they fail. So uh, go out there and try stuff so that you can level up. The next threshold is you roll a 7 to 9, okay? So you get a 7, 8, or 9 on your roll. That is a partial success. That means you get what you're, you're trying to accomplish. You do that thing, but there's some additional consequence or additional, you know, hard choice that you may have to make as a player. And the moves that we will talk about a little bit later actually have these defined in most cases. So uh, the move might give you an option to pick, you know, one or two uh, bad things of happening, or maybe you have to take a lesser effect. Then you have a 10 plus. So a 10 plus is a pure success. And that's a good thing, right? That's what you want. You get everything that you were looking for. Uh, and you don't have to suffer any bad consequences. A lot of times the moves will, you know, tell you to pick a couple of options or something like that. Uh, we'll get into, the, into those when we discuss the moves a little bit later. And then there's not really a critical uh, success per se um, in Dungeon World, although sometimes moves will refer to getting a 12 plus um, someone as like a critical hit or a critical success. Um, just because getting 12 plus on a die roll like that is pretty difficult. Uh, your odds of just rolling a 12 on 2d6 are uh, pretty low. It's like 1 in 36, I believe. So um, even with modifiers, you're not bumping your chances up a whole lot of getting it. So 
in the event that you want to play with critical hit or critical success, um, or if there are custom moves out there, a lot of times 12 plus is where you would put that critical range in. So just to recap, uh, when you're rolling a check or you're rolling on a move, you roll 2d6 and you add your modifiers or any penalties that you might have, and then you're trying to get into different thresholds. Um, six minus is a fail, you mark experience. Seven to nine is a partial success, so you get what you want, but at a cost. 10 plus is a full success, you, you do what you're looking for, and then 12 plus may or may not have you know extra bonuses uh, as a critical success. Let's take a quick look at the character sheet. I think this is a great way to learn how uh, the game plays. And um, you can find these online for free, dungeonworld.com, there's downloads, um, and you can get the basic moves, the special moves, and then all of the playbooks. So definitely recommend taking a look at this. If you read through this, you will pretty much know the entire, entire rule set uh, for the game. So the uh, first thing, so I'm going to take a look at the fighter class. I think that's a good example to uh, get started. He's pretty simple. Uh, and making making characters in this game is very quick. You pick a name, uh, and it gives you some, um, you know, dwarf, elf, halfling, and human name suggestions. You pick a look. So your look consists of basically four different attributes, like body, eyes, hair, and skin, and it gives you a couple options that you can just straight up circle them if you want to or write your own in. Very quick. Uh, there's a spot for armor, and there's a spot for hit points. Hit points are pretty low. It's 10 plus your actual constitution score, which is your uh, like D&D, they do the, uh, you have a, a big number, and then that translates to a modifier. Um, it's kind of weird that they decided to hold that over, but for hit points, it's the big number. So, like, if you had a 16 in Constitution, it'd be 10 plus 16 for 26 total hit points. Um, I don't think the highest you can have in Dungeon World is, like, 28 or 30 hit points if you focused entirely on your Constitution every time you leveled up. So, hit points are pretty low in the game. Uh, which keeps things deadly, uh, which is fun. Uh, your class also has a damage dice. So your damage is not based on your weapon. Your damage is based on your class. Uh, and it makes sense, trust me, it makes sense. Um, answer this question for me. Who would do more damage? A wizard with a great sword or a barbarian with a broken chair leg? Probably the barbarian, right? Like they're they're just gonna do more damage. They're they're a mad, strong, you know, berserker, right? The it does the wizard doesn't even know how to handle the weapon, right? Let alone do damage with it. It doesn't matter how sharp or big it is. Uh so damage is based on class. So for example, the fighter has a D ten. I believe the wizard is a D four. Uh, I think the barbarian gets all the way up to a D uh twelve. Um so damage is based on class, and like I said, it makes sense because the classes like the fighter and the barbarian, they're trained in fighting like that, so they're going to have better damage. The wizard can cast spells that do that have better damage dice, uh, but like if they just pick up a weapon, it doesn't matter what it is, they're going to suck at it. Um, and then you've got alignment. Uh, most of them have like three alignment options, and then like a fill-in-the-blank one if you want to pick a custom one. Um, these are really simple, and if you trigger them during the course of a session, at the end of the session, you get to mark an additional experience point, uh, which is good because you you need right around seven experience um, plus whatever your level is in order to level up. So any point of extra experience you can get is great. Uh, so for the fighter, 
Uh, they have good, which is defend those weaker than you, neutral, which is defeat a worthy opponent, and evil, kill a defenseless or sunder, uh, surrendered enemy. Right? So very simple things to try to accomplish during any session, and uh, you try to play to your alignment because you get uh, XP bonuses, right? Uh, you've got your six main stats, uh, strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, charisma, uh, and then their modifiers, which is the uh, three-letter uh, variant of that. So uh, STR, dex, con, int, wiz, cha. Um, and then you also, each one of those has a uh, condition next to it. It's a little checkbox. And basically, instead of taking damage, sometimes the GM will say you take a condition and then you mark one of those. They might let you pick or they might tell you which one. And that just is a minus one to all rolls of that type until you remove that condition. So it's not good, um, but it's not damage either. So uh, you also have bonds. Uh, bonds are maybe one of the weaker sides of Dungeon World. Um, they don't always play out in a way that makes sense. Um, but basically, it's like a handful of sentences where you fill in another player's name. Um, like, blank owes me their life, whether they admit it or not, right? And then one of the things is at the end of the session, if you resolve the bond, then uh, mark an experience point for that. The The kind of weakness here is that um, it's not they're not always super clear as to whether or not you've resolved a bond uh, so other people have substituted other things in for bonds um, they're they're okay um, and then the uh, playbook also has a race um, so in the case of the fighter not all uh, playbooks have the same uh, race list uh, though usually there is a spot for a custom uh, list. And races in uh, Dungeon World also have different effects um, based on what class you are. So playing an elf fighter is going to give you a different uh, move than playing an elf wizard, for example. Uh, so let's take a look at um, elf. In this, so this says dwarf, elf, halfling, and human. Um, they each have a different ability, like the elf says choose a weapon, you can always treat that weapon. Uh, weapons of that type as if they had the precise tag, which basically means you can use dexterity instead of strength when you're um, fighting with it. Right? Halfling says when you defy danger you use and you use your small size to your advantage, you get to add plus one. Okay, now if we compare that with the elf race from the wizard playbook, um, the elf race there says... Uh, magic is as natural as breath to you. Detect magic is a cantrip instead of a you know regular spell. So your race gives you you know kind of a themed thing, but it's not the same like in D and D. If you're an elf, you get elf abilities regardless of if you're a fighter or a wizard or whatever. Here, your race kind of just is more specific to your playbook, which I think is kind of neat. And then there's also always an option to uh, write your own in you know work with the DM to come up with something. Okay, let me get back to Fighter Playbook. Uh, they get some starting moves. Uh, these are things that your class just starts out with that are specific. Uh, fighter gets a signature weapon. They get to pick a couple of options. It's basically just a handful of checkboxes. Um, super fast. And then they also get uh, Bend Bars, Lift Gates, and Armored. So they get to ignore the clumsy tag on armor that you wear. Uh, and that's it. Oh, actually, that's not it. That's the first page. Second page, you've got a spot to put uh, how much money you have. Um, your gear equipment load um, is, you know, 12 plus your strength. Um, and it says uh, it's got some gear. So you uh, start out with some dungeon rations, five use. Dungeon rations, five uses, uh, one weight. 
you can choose your defenses. You can have chainmail, uh, which is one armor um, and adventuring gear, five uses, or you can have scale armor, which is two armor. And then you can also choose two from the list, he- two healing potions, a shield, antitoxin and dungeon rations, and poultice and herbs, or 22 coins. Very specific, but you get to pick two from that list. Um, I'm going to take a brief moment to talk about adventuring gear because it is genius. Adventuring gear, five uses, is is a bag of stuff. It's a bag of adventuring gear, right? It might be a torch, might be a rope, might be whatever it is, anything that makes sense. And when you're adventuring, uh, you basically can make the case to say, hey, I'm going to look in my adventuring pack and I need a rope right now. So then you just mark off a use, say, okay, now I'm down to four uses and I have a rope. And this is just kind of a way to get rid of the like some of the planning aspects, the boring shopkeeping things. Like I don't need to go in town and buy a rope and this and this and this and this and this. You just say, okay, I'm in town. I'm going to spend you know a gold or whatever it is to refill all my adventuring gear. Bam, five uses. And I can use it to produce whatever relevant item makes sense. Now, you can expand this out too as a GM and say, like, what if the players raid a wizard's tower, right? You could say, okay, uh, you know, you grab a handful of supplies, you have three uses of wizard equipment or stuff. So it might be like books, or it could be, you know, alchemical ingredients, or, you know, beakers, stuff like that, right? Uh, So you don't necessarily have to know what it is. They just have to say, like, could I can I use my adventuring gear to produce this item? And, then, and as a DM, you say, yep, that's that makes sense. Take it out, mark your use off. Just makes that whole system so much easier. Uh, there's some slots for your inventory, what you're carrying, and then there's advanced moves. So every time you level up, you get to pick an advanced move. Um, and there's a list. So when you're uh, when you gain, gain a level from 2 to 10, you can pick any of the, on the first list. And then there's a second list that says when you gain a level from 6 to 10, so these are kind of like advanced, uh, advanced, advanced moves. Um, and sometimes there are prerequisites to previous moves to pick these ones. Um, but like uh, seeing red, when you discern realities during combat, you take plus one. Um, there's other ones that let you do more damage. Scent of blood, when you hack and slash an enemy... Um, your next attack against the same foe deals an extra 1d4 damage. Multi-class dabbler, pick a move from a different class. You know, things like that. There's also some that are a little bit more specific. So, like, Heirloom is kind of cool. It's kind of got, like, a Mulan feel. When you consult the spirit that resides within your signature weapon, they will give you insight related to the current situation. Um, and it might ask you some questions in return. So you roll plus charisma. On a 10+, plus, the GM will give you... Good detail on 7 to 9, the GM will give you an impression. Um, So just things like that. There's a bunch of things that let you enhance your character. Um, uh, The max level in Dungeon World is level 10, so you'll have 10 advanced moves by the time you're done with this, Uh, or less if you take like an uh, advanced, one of the upgraded version. Um, And that's basically the playbooks. They're super fast to fill out. You can make a character in like 5 to 10 minutes really quickly. Um, and then when you assign stats, I guess I forgot to mention that, uh, there's just kind of a standard array that's listed on there and it just says assign them in this order and here's what the modifier for each one is. Um, and that's the playbook. Super simple, super easy to get started. And the nice thing is that the way the moves are written, uh, which we'll talk about in a second, the moves are the rules of the game. If you have the, the moves, the basic moves, uh, and your class moves, you basically have everything you need to play the game. So super easy. I love it. The next thing that we are going to talk about is fiction first, fail forward, and then we're going to take a look at moves and fictional positioning. 
Okay, so fiction first, what does that mean? Dungeon World and, in many cases, Powered by the Apocalypse games tend to be fiction first, which means that the mechanics of the game don't come into play until something triggers them in the fiction. I'm going to quickly mention something that I forgot to in the last section, that Dungeon World is essentially D&D ported to a Powered by the Apocalypse engine. So really the theme of Dungeon World is D&D, just using this Powered by the Apocalypse style of gameplay. And if you're coming from a D&D game, Fiction First isn't necessarily the case. I think that D&D is more of a mechanics first, fiction second. Um, and to illustrate that, in many cases, when you're trying to do something in D&D, if it's on your character sheet, you can just do it, right? Like if, or there's basic actions you can take, like the attack action or, um, you know, the dodge action, right? Like you can just do those things that they just exist for you to do. You could just say, Hey, I attack this thing. And then you roll. Now in dungeon world, dungeon world is fiction first. So you, you don't have the ability to just say, I attack this thing and then I get to roll dice, right? You have to narrate or give fiction um, that would trigger a move. And the game master is the person who arbitrates whether or not a move is triggered. Let's take a look at a couple of the basic moves and then um, we'll kind of work our way up in terms of kind of difficulty of the moves and we'll talk about how the fiction and stuff plays into those moves. We're going to start with Defy Danger, which is really just a basic check or saving throw type move. Um, and all of the moves in Dungeon World and often in PBTA games have this similar structure. And I'm going to, I'm going to read this one out for you. And you can actually find these all online. Um, you can get the playbooks, uh, which are like your classes and the uh, basic moves and stuff all online for free. Um, if you just go to DungeonWorld.com, there's a download section. You'll be able to find it and take a look at this. And this is basically the entire uh, rules for the game that you really need to know is all tied up in these, which is great. So Defy Danger reads like this. When you act despite an imminent threat or suffer a calamity, say how you deal with it and roll. Um, if you do it with uh, pow uh, by powering through it, you roll plus strength. By getting out of the way or acting fast, plus dex. By enduring, plus con, with quick thinking, plus int, through mental fortitude, plus whiz, uh, using charm and social grace, plus charisma. On a 10+, plus, you do what you set out to. The threat doesn't come to bear. On a 7-9, to nine, you stumble, hesitate, or flinch. The GM will offer you a worse outcome, hard bargain, or ugly choice. So all of the moves in Dungeon World have that sort of structure. When they require a roll, they're going to tell you what the trigger for the roll is, and they're going to tell you what to roll with, and then it's going to give you a 10 plus option as to what happens, a 7 to 9 option as to what happens, and then 6 minus is usually left out uh, for GM interpretation. They get to uh, go to them and make a move that they want to do, and then they can kind of do anything, uh, which is why we don't like 6 minuses as much. Uh, but like I said, Defy Danger is really the, it's like a check, like, uh, hey, this guy's coming at you with a sword and he's hacking and slashing at you. Uh, what do you do? I mean, you could say, I'm going to, you know, use my uh, shield and try to block the attack. Uh, that would probably be a strength roll to avoid taking damage um, or maybe a con roll. Uh, if you try to dodge it and jump out of the way, then it'd be a dex roll, right? If you try to uh, 
like outsmart him or um let's say you try to use charm or you know taunt him or something to make him mess up then maybe be a charisma roll right uh there are different options that we can do here and just depending on how you react is what you kind of go to so defy danger is like i said this is kind of the fallback move okay so anytime that there's not a better move that makes more sense then the GM can always fall back on, okay, make it defy danger dexterity or whatever it is, right? Um, so this is kind of the general check saving throw uh, sort of a deal. And I will add that all of the rolls are done, uh, really with the exception maybe of monster damage, are done by the player. The Dungeon Master doesn't tend to make rolls. They ask the players to to basically make actions um, versus attacking. So or versus versus rolling. So like in that example, the GM didn't, you know, roll an attack for the monster. They just said, you know, the monster's coming to hit you. How do you get out of the way? And then the player gets to decide how they're going to deal with it. And if they fail the roll, they're going to take damage, right? Or have other bad things happen to them. So it is more on uh, players than on the game master rolling dice. Now, let's take a look at hack and slash this is the standard like melee attack for dungeon world when you attack an enemy in melee roll plus strength on a 10 plus you deal your damage to the enemy and avoid their attack at your option you may choose to do an extra d6 of damage but expose yourself to the enemy's attack so you have a little bit of an option here on the 10 plus on a 7 to 9 you deal your damage to the enemy and the enemy makes an attack against you so when you Again, the monsters don't necessarily take like turns as they typically would in another tabletop RPG. They somewhat more react to you. If you go up and try to like stab a goblin, it's going to try to defend itself. And if you roll poorly and don't get around its defenses, you're going to take damage or maybe you both take damage, right? Even if, you know, your attack kills it, it's in that attack, you still may take damage uh, as retaliation. So uh, this is where... Um, the fiction first piece of it comes in as well because this isn't just a uh, i mean it does say when you when you attack an enemy in melee there's some fictional positioning though that we can use uh that this might not always trigger okay or it might be able to trigger it against multiple people so um hack and slash i think it doesn't explicitly say it here but in other things that i've read you can actually hit multiple enemies with it so if there's like three enemies right next to you you can say like hey i hit this one and then i kick that other one and i do this upward slash on this one you roll hack and slash you can hit all of them if they're you know kind of within your range um the other thing with fictional positioning is saying sometimes hack and slash might not be triggered okay so let's say you have like an iron golem uh or a dragon or something you know something with just ridiculous amount of armor plating uh scales that sort of a thing something that you know like a a sword just a regular sword or something isn't gonna do any damage to right uh you can have a player come up and say okay i take my sword and i start beating on the iron golem right and as the gm it is your right to be able to say hey that doesn't trigger hack and slash you're not able to actually trigger the attack because um a steel sword on a chunk of iron just like you might scratch the outside of it a little bit, but like you're not really going to hurt the thing, whether it's an iron golem or a dragon, you're going to have to find a different way to damage this thing. Um, 
not only is it like a resistant or like immune to that like damage type, it just you just don't even get to do the roll. And the fact that you kind of use your action up to go and do that thing, um, the DM might make it, you know, if it's a dragon, it might have it like smack you with its tail or bite you or um, it could have the iron golem just turn and smash you or maybe the iron golem just completely ignores you. Um, and so as a dungeon master to kind of think about these things, because the monsters don't typically have a lot of hit points, even the dragons only have like 16 hit points, which you know, coming from uh, a D&D game, you think, okay, dragons should have like hundreds of hit points, and they do tons of damage and all this stuff. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily make the enemies interesting. Um, and it kind of leads to uh, an issue in D&D where Monsters just kind of become a big bag of hit points, which isn't as fun. And I'm going to take a quick little detour to talk about the 16 hit point dragon. Um, I think illustrated very well. Uh, dragons have a ton of armor, and uh, let's take um, Smog for example from The Hobbit. He he actually goes down with a single ballista shot. Okay, he doesn't necessarily have a ton of health because he died to one hit. Now the caveat here is that all of the other attacks against Smog uh, bounced off of him. Um, the only reason that the shot was able to hit him was because there was a very specific weakness. There was one scale that had been damaged uh, previously, and I, if I remember correctly, that scale actually gets hit a second time um, with one of the shots from the ballista. Uh, and I believe the black ballista bolts that are used are somewhat special in Lord of the Rings. Um, and this is kind of where you're getting into that, you know, regular attack. You try to hit Smog with a sword, he'll just eat you. Or you shoot arrows at him, they just deflect off his shield, right? You don't even get to trigger the move. You don't, there's not a chance of rolling damage, nothing like that. Uh, but if you line up your circumstances and you have the items and you have found a weakness for the dragon or whatever, uh, and you hit him with a, a ballista shot and probably, in that case, rolled like a critical or did extra damage or, you know, had other things to boost your damage, you know, 16 hit points, uh, you don't only need a couple dice to do 16 hit points of damage, especially when you've got, like, special gear and ballistas probably do ex more damage than, you know, regular weapons since they're siege weapons, right? So um, thinking about it like that from kind of a cinematic perspective uh we can kind of see how uh, having low hit points doesn't necessarily mean that dragons aren't scary uh in D, D, oftentimes um the players and the enemies have so much hp and so many abilities and stuff that they can just automatically trigger uh that a fight may not be that scary but in dungeon world fictional positioning and actually using monsters and their kind of logical consequences of how they're built um makes them scary and deadly um let's take a look at the uh defend move um I actually let's not take a look at defend let's take a look at discern realities so a couple of these moves like discern realities and spout lore are um really kind of like knowledge checks and perception checks so discern realities is when you closely study a situation or a person, you roll plus wisdom. So this is like a perception check, right? You're trying to read the room or a person. On 10 plus, ask the GM three questions from the list below. On a 7 to 9, only ask one, and then you take plus one forward when acting on the answer. That just means you get a plus one 
a bonus whenever you're acting on something like that. So the questions are, what happened here recently? What is about to happen? What should I be on the lookout for? What here is useful or valuable to me? Who's really in control here? Or what here is not as it appears to be? Now, the player asks these questions and the GM giving a, you know, correct answer to these, not lying to the players, right? Um, this list players have a little bit of input. Now, we're going to take a look at Spout Lore here, too. Um, I really like how this one works. Uh, so when you consult your accumulated knowledge about something, so maybe you're a wizard and you know a ton of information about dragons or something, you roll plus int. On a 10+, plus, the GM will tell you something interesting and useful about the subject relevant to your situation. On a 7-9, to nine, the GM will only tell you something interesting. It's on you to make it useful. The GM might ask you, how do you know this? Tell them the truth. So... This is a common thing in Powered by the Apocalypse and Dungeon World is to say, here's this bit of information that I'm going to give you as the, the game master. How does your character know that information? Which is a great way to dig deeper into some of the backstory and almost generate backstory for characters on the fly. Because let's say you're a wizard and you you know you found out useful information. Um, and actually, isn't that just like in The Hobbit, right? They... What do we know about Smog? Oh, he has this scale that's, you know, broken. Oh, how do we know that? Oh, it happened during this battle and we were, you know, we were there at the battle. Okay, so now we learned a little bit more about um, the dwarves' history, right? And we didn't necessarily need to know that ahead of time. It just kind of came up on the fly. So this is how moves are structured. Um, there's a very basic setup. And all of your moves, um, basically all of the rules in the game are encapsulated into this move structure. So leveling up is a move, recovering is a move, making camp is a move. Um, there's uh, an end of session move, which can help you gain more experience. Um, defending, you know, these are all kind of basic things that you would want to do, making camp, that sort of thing. And then each character class or playbook, you know, you've got your typical um, playbooks like Barbarian and Fighter and Wizard and Cleric and Bard and stuff like that. They all have um, specific moves. They get some starting moves that kind of define them as a class, and then they get additional moves uh, as they level up. So let's take a look at the Fighter, just because this is a simple guy. He has, uh, he's a sig signature weapon, which is cool. So he has a couple of options to pick, like, what the what type of weapon it is, um, what properties it has, if it has any, like, additional um, things attached to it, and what it looks like. Um, and they have one, we'll come back to the weapon thing in a little bit here. Uh, but we're, let's talk about Ben Barr's lift gates. So this is a move uh, for the fighter, and it says, when you use pure strength to destroy an inanimate object, roll plus strength. On a 10+, plus, you choose 3. On a 7 to 9, choose 2. Uh, so there's a list of four options here. It doesn't take a very long time. Nothing of value is damaged. It doesn't make an, an inordinate amount of noise. Or you can fix the thing again without a lot of effort. So now anybody in the game could try to, you know, use pure strength to destroy an inanimate object, right? Um, you could try to bash in a door, you know, as a wizard. But the fighters get a specific, a more specific move to the situation, um, which gives them, you know, more specific options as for the outcome, uh, which is good for them because maybe they do want to be able to fix the thing, or maybe they don't want it to make a lot of noise, or they don't want anything valuable to be damaged when they do it. If a wizard or a non-fighter character 
decided to kind of do the same thing. What the GM would probably lean to would be the defy danger move that we talked about before, just doing strength. Now, the disadvantage to doing that is um, on a 10 plus, you know, you do the thing, but on a 7 to 9, it's partial success. And you don't necessarily know what the GM is going to say or give you as an option for what happens. Uh, And so in this case, being a fighter and having this move that's more specific, you know kind of what you're getting into when you're doing it, uh, which is, is better than not knowing, you know, kind of what your options are. So, and then it also, a lot of these moves like this give you a choice of what happens. Uh, so if you have certain things you particularly care about, you can make sure that those things happen at the cost of not being able to have other things. Like maybe you really don't want to damage something and you need it to be fast. Uh, and unfortunately that means it's going to, you know, make a bunch of noise and you're not going to be able to fix it again later. So, uh, but you get to make those decisions about what happens. And like I said, there are a lot of moves in here that say, here's a couple, you know, here's a list of things that could go wrong. Uh, when you get the seven to nine, nine result, you have to pick one. Uh, but it puts some of the agency in the seat of the players and out of the seat of the GM. Um, there's another one like that, like uh, the, um, let's see here, the wizard and cleric have a cast cast a spell move and let me find it prepare spells spell but cast a spell when you release a spell you've prepared roll plus intelligence this is for the wizard on a 10 plus the spell is successfully cast and you may cast the spell again later on a 7 to 9 the spell is cast but choose one you draw unwelcome attention or put yourself in a spot the gm will tell you how the spell disturbs the fabric of reality as it is cast. You take minus one ongoing to cast a spell until the next time you prepare spells, so you get kind of an ongoing penalty uh, that stacks. Um, after it is cast, the spell is forgotten, and you cannot cast the spell again until you've prepared spells. Um, and then there's a little note that maintaining multiple spells with ongoing effects uh, sometimes have a penalty to roll to, uh, to future casting rolls. Um, so... You get the choice, right? Like, maybe you don't want to forget the spell. You're going to need it again later. Uh, and maybe uh, you don't want to take minus one because you still need to be casting spells right now. Maybe you're in combat or something. So you can say, hey, I draw unwelcome attention. Uh, put yourself in a spot. And the GM will come up with some some bad situation uh, that moves the fiction forward. Uh, and also uh, still gives you some agency as to how bad things are happening to your character. And I think this is one of the ways... And the way that these moves are written and how you have to um, use fiction, trigger um, the moves, uh, and then the moves also giving you options on kind of what happens when they succeed or, you know, partially succeed. And I feel like as a game, this tends to lead to more cinematic type encounters or type scenes. And it also tends to lead towards better role-playing because the mechanics of the game don't come into play until you've interacted with the fiction, right? Like the game is forcing you to role-play in order to trigger mechanics, which is sometimes true in D&D. You know, you might say, hey, I'm going to try to do this thing, and then the DM will ask for a role. But it's not always the case because there are certain standard actions that you can just do all the time. Uh, attack action, dodge action, you know, different things like that. You, you have abilities on your character sheet that you just can trigger because you can, right? You don't have to do anything. They just have to be on your sheet. Um, and this uh, this leads to you have to describe what you're doing 
you have to explain how it makes sense in the fiction that you can trigger these things. Um, in D&D, although a lot of people probably wouldn't want to look at it this way, but you can play, especially combat encounters out, you can completely play them out without never narrating anything. You could just say, okay, I attack this guy, here's my roll, there's my damage, okay. So, you know, I hit or I miss, whatever. Moving on, I, I move here, I do this spell, blah, blah, blah. And you could never describe any fluff or any flavor. I mean, you, you could just say, I attack, I cast a spell, I do this thing, and, and just leave it at that. Um, and it can be really bland that way because there's no description. It's just, this is basically like a board game, you know, or a skirmish war game or something, right? Uh, and with this, when you have to trigger mechanics through fiction, uh, it tends to lead towards, like I mentioned, that little bit more of a cinematic style. Um, the partial success and the fail forward mechanics also lend it a little bit mechanically uh, or cinematically as well because you get into situations where you might attack a monster and uh you fail the attack you know six minus and instead of it just being a miss something happens uh, the gym will make something happen so a lot of times that's like okay you rolled the six minus uh he you know the monster blocks your attack and sends your sword skittering across the floor okay now what are you going to do? You're you're now unarmed against an armed opponent. Um, okay, I you know I dive. I try to roll over to grab my sword. Okay, make a dex roll. Okay, you fail that too. You you know he sees you and he you know sticks his foot out and trips you. So now you're prone on the ground and he's looming over you and he's right. He's you know he's raising his sword up. He's gonna he's gonna end you right here. You know what do you do? Okay, now you you get into these situations where it it becomes kind of a flowing conversation between making moves and. Then narrating a little bit of fiction and then okay dm calls for another move you make the move you see what happens uh you play to find out what happens which is one of the uh, tenets of dungeon world and powered by the apocalypse games and that's something again in dd doesn't always come up because you can say attack okay i missed whatever it was just a waste of a turn okay now he attacks okay he, he deals damage okay now i attack you know you don't you don't get into as much of that kind of narrative cinematic style as you do, or as easily, I think, as you do in Dungeon World. And Dungeon World just roll, just wraps it all into the rules of the game, into the moves, uh, which makes it a lot easier, I think, as a dungeon master to be just to be thinking about those things as possibilities. Um, so that's some somewhat what I wanted to talk about for fictional positioning for moves. Um, moves are also super easy to write custom. Um, it's really easy to put together stuff. There's a lot of examples um, in the book, and it's really easy to take them and tweak them for just like if you wanted to make different classes or like custom moves for magic items or something. Um, that's super easy. Um, and let's see, where are we at here? So we talked about fiction first. We talked about fail forward a little bit. Um, I, I do want to mention fail forward one more time because in D and D, like we mentioned, right? A fail is a fail, and a lot of times it stops. Um, it stops the narrative. Um, I'll give a classic example of picking a lock on the door. Right? Rogue's trying to get into the door, picks the lock, fails the roll. Okay. Now what? We just is the door locked. Uh, maybe I don't, I don't know. We just like try it again. Um, in Dungeon World, six minus would cause something to happen. DM might trigger monsters or the environment to change or something or to uh, unleash a new thing that happens. 
One tip that I heard was a 6 minus can sometimes be the success that they didn't want. Um, kind of think, you know, Emperor's new, new Groove, Kronk, wrong lever, and they, you know, they fall down, right? So let's go back to that picking lock scenario. Rogue tries to pick the lock, they roll 6 minus. Door opens easily, lock slips right off, they open the door. You, you didn't, this isn't the door you thought it was. You open the door and uh, you see a bunch of tables and bunk beds and like six uh, armed guards are sitting around a table playing uh, poker and they all turn and look at you, right? Okay, now things are interesting. Uh, you, you opened the door, but you, you, you failed in a way, right? Um, and somewhat of this... This may be harder to do if you're playing on like a battle map or something, but theater of the mind, you can kind of twist things around a little bit because you don't necessarily have to know what's on that the other side of that door until the roll comes around, right? What what's there changes or could change depending on uh, what they're after, or maybe it's not that. Maybe uh, maybe they're you know they're in a heist trying to steal something and they open the door and they're all six minus and the door opens and the vault is empty. Okay, now hold on a minute. Uh, all of our information said that uh, the thing we were looking for to, uh, to steal was here, and this is a completely empty room. So did somebody like steal it uh, beforehand, or did uh, you know now the players' minds are racing? Right? Um, have we been betrayed? Uh, does somebody did somebody know we were coming and they moved it ahead of time? Okay, do we need? To, okay, now we better watch for guards coming. It could be a trap, right? Um, these are things that don't always come up as much. Uh, in like a D&D game, uh, but there are things to think about. And this is one of the things that I think that you can steal because uh, six minus any type of failure, whether it's in Dungeon World, D&D, or another game, a failure, just have that in the back of your pocket, that that can be a success that they didn't want. Change the game, twist it up, twist up the narrative as to be to not slow down the pace of the game, to not just be a bunch of people that are just stuck behind a door because they can't roll good enough, right? Um, so we talked about moves, fictional positioning, um, six minus. We also talked a little bit about player input um, and the partial successes. That is one of the things that I really love about the system. Um, the game, because you're rolling 2d6, you tend towards partial success because your most likely dice roll on 2d6 is a 7. Uh, so you're most likely to hit that 7 to 9 roll. And then if you have modifiers, you know, that bumps it up 1 or 2. Even if you have a plus 2, your most likely roll is still a 9. Uh, so players aren't going to get the full success that they want as frequently as they would in like a D&D game. They're going to tend towards the middle, which is going to be partial success, which tends to keep things moving forward. Um, and, and introduces, you know, little, you know, injections of drama uh, as their planes aren't going as well as they want them to be. Uh, and that's where the fun and the drama comes. Let's now take a look at GM moves. So GM moves are things that happen when the players roll a six minus or when they uh, all the players turn and look to you to see what happens next. Uh, this is when you trigger moves and there's a handful of moves that you can use. So um, one of the options is use a monster location or danger move. Uh, so this is, you know, like it says, monsters often have a couple of moves uh, written on them. Uh, this is pretty um, pretty standard. Sometimes your location might have things that can happen um, or dangers, just overarching dangers from the adventure. We'll talk about that more with uh, adventure fronts. You could reveal an unwelcome truth. So uh, maybe 
the players are fighting some orcs, and the unwelcome truth is uh, you see a couple more goblin scouts uh, on the hill kind of behind you, so reinforcements, that's not good. Uh, we also talked about that a little bit with um, the unwanted truth being, you know, your rogue broke into the vault and it's either empty or filled with people, right? Uh, show signs of an approaching threat, so could be anything, same kind of deal. These are all kind of similar um, similar ideas. Uh, your importance and adventure fronts will come up with this one as well. Uh, you can deal damage, so you can just straight up, you know, roll the damage dice against uh, against the players. Uh, you can also inflict a condition, uh, which we talked about a little bit um, with the playbooks. Conditions just give you a minus one to whatever, uh, to their associated stat until the player can either take a health potion to, re to get rid of it or an, in some other way deal with that condition. You can also use up their resources. So, you know, they have a tor torch burns out or burns up or um, they drop some coins or something in some way, sword breaks, whatever. Um, whatever it is, you can just kind of burn their resources. Turn a move back on them. So character might be trying to do something, um, but it just completely backfires. You know, casting a spell and fireball blows up in your face. Something like that. Easy enough to do. Separate the characters from each other. Uh, you know, never split the party. Uh, but in this case, we're splitting the party against their will. Uh, so this could be the case of, um, let's say you're trying to get this valuable item and it's being guarded by a large, you know, golem. Right, and you're with all the parties on one side of the room, and your thief tries to dodge and get past the golem to get to the thing, and they roll maybe a uh, seven to nine, and one, or a, I mean, in this case, six minus. Uh, you could say, okay, you have the option. You can either uh, not get around him and stay with the party, or uh, you can get to the thing, but you're now separated from the party, and you can't easily, you know, get back. Or, you know, you cross a bridge, and uh, the bridge breaks and falls down. Okay, now you're separated. Um, give an opportunity that fits a class's ability. So if you have a certain class that's good at a certain thing, like maybe uh, something needs to be shot down from a high area or shoot a rope or something, you know, give the ranger a chance to shine or give another character a chance to shine um, besides the one that is um, in uh, kind of in the spotlight that's that's dealing with the consequences. Now let somebody else... Uh, have an opportunity to kind of take the, the limelight show a downside to their class race or equipment so um just like everybody has uh things that they're good at they also have things that they're weaknesses at so uh maybe you know your heavily armored uh dwarf now has to deal with like a bunch of water uh, and and something that's going to be very difficult for them to get through because you know while they're very defensible against um weapons and attacks like that uh, just getting through you know a basic river or something might be very difficult for them with all of that heavy armor on. And then uh, there's also offered opportunity with or without a cost. So sometimes you can say, here here are two options. Here's two outcomes that you could have. Uh, you get to pick one. They're probably both bad and dangerous. Um, kind of like I did with the uh, rogue getting split from the party. You say, hey, you can do this thing or you can do that thing. Um, and sometimes it could be like, oh, hey, your ranger missed his bow shot. Okay, now you get to pick which one of your allies does the arrow hit, right? Make them make that decision. Don't make it randomly. Make them pick. Uh, it leads for better drama at the table. Uh, you can also put somebody in a spot. So uh, putting in a spot or a tough choice. Uh, similar to we talked about um, 
you get disarmed right in the middle of combat. Right now you're in a spot because you're you're unarmed uh, and you've got a you've got a guy to deal with and and no weapon to deal with them with uh, things like that. Put them in a bad situation or make the bad situation uh, get worse. Out of the frying pan into the fire. Uh, and then also the last one, tell them the requirements or consequences and ask. So you could say, okay, in order for you to, you know, accomplish this thing, you know, we, we already failed. We're trying to do this ritual to, you know, open a portal somewhere in order to, you know, we failed on our first attempt. And now in order to do this, you know, our magic is failing and we're now going to need some, you know, priceless gem or something in order to, to complete the ritual. Right. Or, um, but, and then here's the, give them, tell them the requirements or the consequences and ask, okay, now what do you, what do you do about that? Or it's also going to, you know, require you to spend or take damage uh, in order to cast this or something. Do, you know, do you continue doing the thing? That is the consequences and ask piece of that. So anytime you uh, have to do a move, there's a you know list of options that can just kind of give you ideas. This list is great even for D&D. Just, just to figure out what happens and to try to move things forward on failures, um, because it's not these aren't specific to Dungeon World. Uh, you could use this entire list, which you can find online, um, and, and you could use that for any game, really. And and there are great ways to think about moving the fiction forward. Um, and then one other thing to mention is hard versus soft moves. Um, so uh, this is something that kind of comes up. A soft move is essentially one that doesn't have immediate consequences um but it's going to get bad and a hard move is something that is like taking damage or um taking a condition or something like that where um you immediately get hit by something and uh you you feel the consequences of that so soft move is kind of like hey there's this orc that's uh charging at you and you know what do you do about it and then you maybe you roll six minus um and you like fall over and trip, right? Fall over and trip, and he's still running at you, right? It's not much of a consequence, but he's still he's still coming. That's a soft move. Nothing, nothing has happened yet. Um, and a lot of times the suggestion is uh, when they fail the first time, give them a soft move. Give them something's happening. You know, you've been, you've been disarmed or moved around in a way that's not advantageous for you, uh, and harm is coming. And then typically if they fail again, okay, hard move, something happens, you take damage, you know, you you didn't escape, now you're taking damage again. Uh, Sometimes you tend to lean towards not doing hard moves constantly all the time, Um, and and kind of doing that kind of ramp up, soft move, you know, another failure, hard move, and then kind of ramp back down, okay, the next thing, soft move, hard move, and you can kind of interweave those as you need to kind of adjust difficulty. Uh, One of the other ways that you can kind of like a pressure valve to let off steam if you don't want to deal damage to uh, a player because that might kill them you can always inflict a condition instead of dealing damage so um so all of the conditions are like for strength it's weak it's a minus one to your strength their dexterity is shaky constitution is sick charisma is scarred wisdom is confused and intelligence is stunned just say hey you take a condition um pick whichever you know Pick the condition you want to take and describe to me how, you know, this guy's attack did this thing to you, uh, right? So, scarred is an easy one, right? Take my swim to charisma and I get this big gash on my, you know, this side of my cheek or something, right? Um, and then it also gives them a chance to roleplay what happened. It gives them a little bit of a choice as to which attribute they want to kind of be stunted for a little bit. 
Um, and it's a way to not just do outright damage, but still, you know, kind of punish them for not being able to get out of the way or uh, taking damage. So those are some of the things there. Uh, for moves, fiction first, again, kind of in this section, moves are super simple, super straightforward. They encapsulate all of the rules of Dungeon World, uh, and you can play with basically just a player uh, playbooks and the basic rules. Um, and you'd be all set. You can play Dungeon World without any anything else, pretty much. All right, the next thing to talk about are Adventure Fronts and Grim Portents. And these kind of go hand in hand. Um, adventure Fronts are kind of kind of lead into um, Grim Portents. And so when an Adventure Front is basically like a bulleted list of what's going to happen in the storyline or in the world if the players don't act. So let's say you have... Uh, uh, orc army that is, you know, gathering troops and they're going to invade, you know, neighboring country, right? So there's a couple things is like, you know, they're starting to recruit uh, more soldiers. And then maybe the next one is, you know, orc scouts are spot have been spotted in, in nearby lands. And the next one might be um, supply lines and stuff are starting to get raided by orcs. And now, you know, uh, a town on the outskirts of the country has has been has fallen, has been captured. And, you know, the next one is uh, one of the a major like military fort is captured. Right. If no if nobody acts, these things happen on kind of a, a major scale. Um, and you just kind of use these as notes to kind of guide what's happening. And you can use them as inspiration for like when bad things happen, right? If something went unchecked or the players fail a mission or whatever, you advance it to the next one, right? And uh, can give you inspiration for, um, and the player's inspiration for kind of what to happen next in the game or in the world. Uh, events can be kind of unraveling, like every time they go back to town after a quest, they, oh, oh, sightings of orcs, you know, on the road and scouts and stuff like that, blah, blah, blah. Oh, next time, still they had to go do something else to come back, oh, no, you know, supply lines have been raided and blah, blah, blah. You know, you can have those events. Now, Grimportants are kind of um, the same thing. A Grimportant, um, and sometimes it's it's more, Grimportant might be more specific to um, a session. So you might write down a handful of things that are going to happen in the session, and you can pull these out um, to escalate the game, the gameplay, um, when they fail a roll. So maybe the player fails a roll, but you don't you don't necessarily want the game to stop. So instead, you can use a Grimportant as kind of a, um, this is that like preview or tell of um, impending doom or, or future badness uh, is you just pick the next thing on your list and you read that one off, right? So maybe there's a storm rolling in and at first, uh, the first, you know, it's a list of like five things and it's like, okay, you see storm clouds off in the distance. And the next one is like, okay, storm clouds are getting a little bit closer and, you know, the temperature starts to dip. And then the next one is, you know, that calm before the storm where, the wind and stuff, all of a sudden, everything gets really, st like, eerily still in the air. And then the next one is, okay, it's starting to rain. There's kind of a light sprinkle. Things are starting to get slippery, which may have some, you know, fictional and, and mechanical impacts to the environment. And then, you know, step five, you're in the middle of, you know, intense winds and there's tree branches and stuff, you know, falling over and stuff like that, right? So, as they're, you know, if they fail rolls, you can, instead of, like, dealing damage or something else, you can say, okay, next step, you're important, next one, uh, this thing is, this thing is happening, it's, it's coming, you know, um, there was one that I heard about, I think it was on the Discern Realities podcast, great podcast to listen to for ideas for Dungeon World and for, um, running games in general, 
Um, but it was like they were going through a dungeon of a Draco Lich, right? So giant Lich undead dragon thing. And the, the dragon wasn't like assembled. So, you know, the first one is they hear like bone rattling and stuff like that. And they get a little bit farther and then it's, um, you know, you, you hear like maybe the voice if the dragon is in your mind, like laughing or something. And the next one is like a big leg bone goes skittering across the ground past the party, you know, and then like there's other things. And then eventually by the end of it, this Draco Lich has like all of these bones, you know, move in to form this giant dragon. Um, and you can play those out, kind of space them out when things happen or when you need to use them um, when you trigger your GM moves. And so both the Adventure Fronts and the Grimportance um, are, are definitely something that you could steal for any game. Very easy to just write down these bulleted, bulleted lists and then just act on them as needed. And oftentimes for the Adventure Fronts, they mention that you should have a handful of these going and almost like you have more going on in the world than... Uh, the players can deal with at any one time, right? So if you have, like, two or three different fronts, like the orcs are invading, and then there's, like, this lich that's trying to, like, you know, perform some weird ritual, you know, that's happening over here, and then to the north, there's, you know, elves or elven wizards are doing something else, you know? And then every time they come back to town, you just, like, advance uh, whichever one they didn't work on, right? So uh, if they go and deal with the orc army, then they come back, you know, you uh, roll the dice and on uh, evens it's the elven wizards are doing something and on odds the lich has done something and you advance their plot line right and you just kind of keep um there's just always something going on makes the world feel a little bit more alive um and you can kind of use those like very broad level thing um to kind of inform and understand what's what's happening so uh that's um adventure fronts and group important um, and I think that's where we're going to cut the episode. I think there's a lot of great things uh, to try here and to pull and to steal. Um, and uh, Dungeon World is a, a fantastic game. It's really fun to play. It's really fun to run. It's a lot easier in my mind to run because a lot of the mechanics and stuff are encapsulated in the rules and they just kind of come up as they come up. So um, definitely give it a try if you're interested. Um, I've also run a Dungeon World uh, one-shot. I'm going to try to get that stuff, that um, audio edited um, and put up, and I'll hopefully run more Dungeon World one-shots uh, in the future. So hang out, hang out on the Discord server and look out for those. Um, and until next time, I will see you guys later. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.